0: My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're on the cusp of the holiday season here in London, but there's unlikely to be much of a summer lull for many in the industry this year. We're now five months away from most LIBOR settings either ceasing or becoming non representative, and just a few weeks away from the rollout of the phase five initial margin rules for non cleared derivatives a deadline that will bring more entities into scope at once than the previous four phases combined. We're also expecting national regulators to publish rules in the coming months that will implement the final Basel III measures in their jurisdictions ahead of the January 2023 start date. A central part of that will be the fundamental review of the trading book, which will overhaul how banks measure market risk capital. The existing Basel reforms have been widely credited with making banks more resilient and helping them to weather the Covid crisis. Several recent reports, including one from the Basel Committee, have concluded that the regulatory reforms implemented since the financial crisis significantly helped banks absorb the shock caused by the pandemic, although the Basel report also identified some issues that may warrant further consideration. To talk through these and other issues, I'm here with Scott O'Malia, ISDA's CEO. I say here, but you're actually in Washington at the moment.
1: Nice to be back. Yes, it is. It is nice to be back, but I've kind of forgotten how hot it can be here in the summer. It was like getting off the airplane and into an oven when I arrived. But it is good to be back, and Washington's beginning to have meetings again, and it's starting to open up a lot more. We have a full week of meetings here, and we're going to continue to engage with policymakers and colleagues and market participants as well. So, You know, I lived here for 20 years, so it's very nice to be back, see friends and be in my old neighborhood now and again and dine at some local restaurants that I've missed.
0: Has there been much focus on capital reforms in those conversations? I hope not with your friends and certainly not when you're out at restaurants, but with the policymakers you've been talking to.
1: Some, but a lot of conversation around crypto and ESG, in fact. Also pandemic response as well. So there's been a a fair wide range of conversation for
0: sure. Given the fact that the US regulators are planning to come out with their Notice of Proposed Rulemaking for the final Basel III measures, if they're not talking about it now, I'm sure they will be soon. And that's not just in the US, we're expecting other national regulators to issue their rules in the coming months. Speaking at the Easter Age Gem in May, EBA Chair Jose Manuel Camp stressed the importance of a swift implementation and said the EU should implement the Basel III reforms in full and without any material deviation. So, with that said, let's get this episode underway. Scott, can you tell us about our guest today?
1: Of course. Our guest for the episode is Dixit Joshi, treasurer of Deutsche Bank. Dixit is also an ISDA board member and has been closely involved in ISDA's work on the Basel capital reforms. As well as talking about capital, I want to get Dixit's view on the use of technology. He's been a big advocate for the greater automation of financial markets and a supporter of ISDA's various initiatives in this area. Okay, let's fire away. Dixit. Thanks a lot for joining us on The Swap. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. As the treasurer of Deutsche Bank, you sit at the nexus of so many important issues, thinking about how you allocate capital, the priorities, making sure you execute on different issues, whether it's LIBOR, the Basel Capital Rules, or we'll get into ESG and crypto as well. I'd like to start by touching on the biggest issue facing the financial institutions at the moment, and that's benchmark reform. We know that the majority of LIBOR settings will either cease or become non-representative at the end of the year. How has your institution approached this issue, and do you think the industry as a whole is well-prepared?
2: Scott, this is one of the largest issues the industry has faced in many decades. That comes after dealing with the various crises the industry has been through. It's large and complicated because it touches so many client segments simultaneously in so many different countries across so many different industries. What you have for the first time is the need for a coordinated, in-sync approach to actually dealing with transition. The various risk-free rate working groups have been very effective in providing guidance, and I think they've been effective because they've had good collaboration between the industry associations such as ISDA, the buy side, the sell side, regulators, and the vendor community all coming together to solution through what were pretty significant issues and the net result is we now have a glide path that's very clear. The industry is executing to that. The regulators are comfortable with that glide path because it incorporates solutions that meet regulatory expectations. And that's been necessary if you wanted to have a successful transition. And is this been important in that, in providing a backbone or a framework across jurisdictions, currencies, various legal entities, so that there's consistency? And confidence in the marketplace that the transition will happen in a way that has transparency, especially around fallback rates. This is critical, you know, in a number of ways. One is having a consistent framework gives market participants comfort when making and providing liquidity. And what you see is efficient and very effective risk management as a result. That I think leads to a virtuous circle, which encourages liquidity to build up in the RFR markets. 26 July will be coming up soon, and we'll see the software first initiative in the market, which hopefully will provide a step change in software-based liquidity. And then the publication of the ISDA IBOR fallback protocols, and then what we saw was the subsequent finalization of the post-cessation fallback rates. That's provided a huge amount of clarity and a clear mechanism. That allows for transition. I think a huge effort across the industry, not without its challenges, but challenges that the industry has stepped up to meet over the years. We have seen positive momentum in bond markets, but I would say we're still in the early days of sort of new issuance linked to RFRs. You know, we ourselves as a bank have done a number of issues as well as helping our clients go to market with new RFR rates. Loan markets, to be fair, have been more challenging. There has been progress in single currency, bilateral domestic lending, but where you have multi-currency or you have syndicated lending facilities, I think progress there has been slower. There has been positive signals coming out of the U.S. official sector where we're hoping to see endorsement of a SOFR term rate. And I think once that happens, you get greater clarity for borrowers, and that will mean transition will move a lot faster in those cash markets.
1: Another important deadline is the implementation of the final Basel III measures. We're expecting national regulators to publish rules implementing these measures, including FRTB, in the coming months. The FRTB introduces new risk-sensitive standardized approach, but sets a high bar for internal model approval. A recent survey by the ECB last year found that 40% of banks that currently use the internal models approach intend to use the new standardized approach under FRTB instead, with another 20% still undecided. Is this a concern, and how do you think about this as a treasurer?
2: Scott, it is a concern in my mind. The Basel Accord had a simple principle, which was that banks should have a strong incentive to develop and to continuously improve their own internal risk management and their ability to quantify risks. These would go through supervisory review and approval, and these models would then drive your capital demand. The good sort of goal here was that it would align your internal bank objectives with the regulatory requirements, should simplify steering of the banks. And so internal models were very much meant to be good for bank risk management. But what we did see during the financial crisis was that internal models suffered in terms of credibility for both market risk, but also for credit risk. And so what we've seen as a result since the financial crisis, the requirements for the use and also how you calibrate internal models, the requirements have risen significantly since then. As long as these requirements somehow refer to models being deficient in their ability to quantify risks, as long as we have that, then you're going to need to run conservatively and embed conservatism into your use of risk models. FRTB is very much along that trend. I do think that if the hurdles to develop and then use new models. If those hurdles are too high, then banks will stop developing those models and move to a non-controversial, less risk-sensitive standard approach, which isn't great. Because as we saw during the financial crisis, using blunt approaches, and I'll just throw out the obvious one we saw then, which was sort of using a ratings-based approach where we saw so many AAA instruments, which were anything but AAA, but because models referred to ratings, it led to the wrong kind of behavior. So You know, the inability to make models more risk sensitive, tailor them accordingly, might pose a risk then to the financial system and by implication also the wider economy. And my fear is that you then see risks, new and evolving risks, build up in the system but without our regulators or others actually noticing.
1: That's a great point. Do you think regulators are aware of that? I mean, to get everybody using the same model, using the same assumptions could create a herd mentality here. How do they think about that?
2: Yeah, I think it does. I mean, look, there's a significant amount, as, as you know, focus on systemic risk. So I think that's the good news, that regulators are highly sensitized to systemic risk and understand that, you know, it can come out of sort of concentrations, whether it's concentrations of positions or models or otherwise. The capabilities of regulators have significantly increased over the last decade. There's a much tighter engagement and to and froing and discussion, whether quantitatively, qualitatively between banks and the regulators, which does give me much comfort. And then you have the CCAR like exams or the equivalent here with the EBA stress tests in Europe, which are, which are quite deep and at some level sort of abstract away which models you're using and so on and actually look at How your balance sheet would perform and what capitalization would look like, which gives me some comfort, but no doubt still a risk. Using like models might lead to outcomes which are undesirable.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the pandemic response, and recently the Basel Committee published a report on early lessons from the pandemic on the Basel reforms. It concluded the higher level of capital and liquidity, as a result of Basel III, did help banks absorb the shock of COVID-19 pandemic and enable them to continue to provide credit and intermediation services during the period of extreme volatility. Do you agree with this assessment and have the post-crisis reforms made banks actually more resilient as was found in that report?
2: The report is an important step because it's part of the debate that we need to have in terms of lessons learned and look at whether the regulatory framework's held up and what changes need to be made to make it more effective. Now, if I cast my eye back to the global financial crisis, New regulations came really at speed during that period, and each of those new sets of rules created dependencies of many constraints for banks' business models, whether it was solvency or leverage or liquidity or bail-in requirements, and all of these were quite complex. The good result there was banks were forced to clean up their balance sheets. Parts of our balance sheet became too capital intensive, and as a result, you found those move into other segments of the economy. And quite frankly, some businesses became unprofitable just given the significant amount of capital and liquidity one needed to hold under the new rules. There was a buildup, of course, from supervisors, you know, for us to build up significant capital and liquidity buffers. And we typically hold those well above supervisory requirements. The reason I mentioned that is because when we came into the crisis, we came in a comfortable distance as an industry to the supervisory minimums. And so the pandemic was quite manageable. Banks were able to continue servicing their clients. And if you recall and cast your mind to March last year, you had a huge amount of outflows in, for example, committed facilities, drawdowns from corporates in a manner that no models had actually ever indicated. And banks were able to deal with that quite comfortably through the period. And by implication, also, these actions then transmitted effectively the goals of monetary and fiscal policy into the real economy as well, i.e. corporates did not need to suspend their business models. You know, money kept flowing and economies kept running, which was clearly a policy goal from central banks and or governments at the time. So I think all in all, a positive outcome. Credit to central banks and regulators for also then allowing, for example, buffer usage, injecting extra liquidity into the marketplace. The swap facilities that were introduced meant that money markets didn't freeze up there was significant amount of focus on the challenges the industry might face or was facing and resolving those. And so I think regulators moved extremely quickly in what was a fast evolving crisis. It is now time to challenge our regulatory and our supervisory framework and ask ourselves, you know, has it become too complex when you look at the role in my case of a treasurer with so many different metrics, both internal and external that we're managing to some short-term, some long-term, by legal entity, by currency, it becomes quite complex. And at some level, you're making compromises because you really can't meet every metric satisfactorily. Of course, we attempt to do that, and most times we do. So is the framework becoming too complex? The other is, you know, longer term, Europe needs to grow. Global economies need to grow. Significant investments are required in infrastructure The climate agenda means that investments and capital markets need to help the marketplace deliver on climate transformation. My question there would be, you know, is the current regulatory and supervisory framework supporting financial innovation? And does it support economic growth in normal times? We know it's worked really well during the crisis. Of course, we'll have some lessons learned, but we saw what happened in the crisis and the framework worked well. Question is, you know, how does it work in normal times? And is it actually a, a lever that's being used appropriately to drive growth? One statistic I'd mentioned to you is when I last looked at sort of growth in bank capital in the eurozone since 2009 or thereabouts, and looked at how much that increase in bank capital would support in terms of lending, that increase in bank capital would have supported you know, circa 7 trillion euros of extra lending. But actually, the amount of extra lending in the eurozone was only about a trillion. Through that period. And what that tells us is all of the extra capital is really gone towards buffers. I do think there's necessary discussion here around how do we drive the real economy in an efficient way in normal times.
1: Incidentally, is the did publish a report with our colleagues at IIF and FSF, the Financial Services Forum, that did perform the analysis and, and looked at all the metrics in some key areas to understand how financial services performed in the crisis. Now, the Basel report also highlighted several areas that may warrant further consideration, including the usability of the capital and liquidity buffers, which you just touched on, procyclicality in the parts of the framework, and the impact of the leverage ratio, specifically whether the leverage ratio acted as a non-risk-sensitive binding constraint that caused banks to reduce intermediation activities. Is recalibration
2: needed in these areas? The current framework is already fairly complex and will become more complex when the final Basel rules are implemented. The multiple constraints we have on solvency, on liquidity, on leverage means that banks will have to meet these challenges and be very balanced and carefully managed through that sort of mass of you know, requirements. So looking at only one element, for example leverage, doesn't work because we're optimizing across all of these. So coming to procyclicality, it it is an expensive feature of the regulatory framework. We have had significant now sort of experience of it during the, the crisis. It requires banks to hold higher capital and liquidity buffer in normal times to be prepared for a crisis situation. And this portion of the buffers cannot be released in a crisis if they, it looks like the crisis is going to go on for longer. And that kind of, that's partly where we found ourselves last year without anyone knowing how long the crisis would persist. If we wanted to reduce the impact, which we do, the impact of pro-cyclicality, either you need the rules to be more flexible or the capital requirements to be more accommodative. So as a result, what we saw is maybe the rules aren't flexible enough, but we did see ad hoc measures, which we're thankful for at the time in 2020, to counter pro-cyclicality and ensure that the markets continue to operate efficiently. Secondly, from a buffer point of view, these were discussions ourselves and other banks were having on our own, but also with our regulators last year when the crisis hit was, you know, how do we look at use of existing buffers? And the answer was very, very carefully. One question was, what market sentiment does using a lower buffer level trigger, basically what signal does it give to the marketplace and how would your analysts and investors be looking at it? The second is if you were to deplete a buffer, including with the blessing of regulators, how soon would it need to be refilled? And so being able to articulate then a a glide path for getting back to the buffers that you had would have been key, which obviously would have been somewhat difficult in the middle of the crisis last year. I think there's more work to be done around that. It's my view that banks will remain somewhat cautious around use of buffers. Regulators last year, signaled correctly that use of buffers was appropriate. Bank treasurers and CFOs and management were careful and will remain careful. The leverage ratio, I think, played a smaller role in that regard because leverage ratio was maybe perhaps the the least binding constraint, if, if I could call it that. An important metric, but not the one that really, I think, drove consideration in sort of the second and third quarter of last year. The current pandemic is the first true test of the new regulatory framework. We need to learn from it. We need to be very open and discuss what worked well versus features that caused the headache and didn't work well, and so that we're more robust for the next crisis. So I do think there's more work to be done here, Scott.
1: All right, let's leave the pandemic behind. The Basel Committee recently published a consultation on the preliminary proposals of the prudential treatment of bank crypto asset exposure. The proposal split crypto assets into two groups, the tokenized traditional assets and the stablecoins, which could largely follow the existing Basel framework and other more volatile crypto assets like Bitcoin that would be subject to very conservative capital treatments. Is this in line with expectations and does this effectively signal that regulators don't want banks to participate in Bitcoin? And finally, what extent will crypto assets feature on a bank balance sheet in the future?
2: Crypto crypto assets distinct from digital currency only, but the wider crypto asset universe, I think, is here to stay with us. It will evolve. It may not look in the form that we have today, but what we have is the beginnings, like we saw in the 90s and the 80s with different financial instruments, the beginnings of an industry which will offer liquidity, exchanges, clearing, settlement, custody, and probably other innovation around these products. It's, I think, not a aberration, but going to be a feature of our industry. I think you want to ask yourself the same questions you ask for anything else. You know, how do you value this instrument? How much capital do you set aside for it? And it's clearly going to be a function of the volatility of the asset, the ability to liquidate. Is this a level three asset or otherwise? How do you tax this asset? How do you ensure this asset as well? And then, of course, all of the conduct rules that come with the space as well. So in a sense, Apply the frameworks we have to sort of the crypto asset space, and you'll find all the answers somewhere there if you apply, just as you were, if you were looking at a new credit instrument or otherwise. They do have some hallmarks that clearly are different, primarily the distributed nature in itself creates issues, not having a single issuer that you can go to and grasp and deal with, whereas you can do that for most other financial instruments. And so some of the nuances do need regulatory adjustment in our framework. And regulators are now beginning to look at this. To our listeners today, I'd say, you know, it might seem like this is all hot and buzzy now, but these discussions have been going on for a number of years on the regulatory side. Regulators are quite well advanced in their thinking around the area. And I think that's why you're beginning to see now lots of sort of requests for comment. And I think we'll start seeing faster movement here from a regulatory perspective and regulatory clarity here. Crypto assets are just one asset type with some of the same characteristics we have elsewhere. I do think there might be some specific rules that we may require, especially when you have a completely opaque sort of value stabilization mechanism where if you have a very high price volatility, of course, you might need a special treatment. I don't think that signals necessary that regulators don't want banks to participate in Bitcoin, but regulators would, in my mind, be asking, tell me how much capital you set aside. Tell me how you're going to value these instruments and tell me why this will not cause any risk to your balance sheet is how I think regulators would be approaching this. I think crypto assets are now becoming part of the economic toolkit. Our clients will demand product capabilities given that they're part of the investment universe. And so we need to consider them and we need to be building the toolkit to be able to serve uh, our clients in this respect.
1: Now, sticking with the technology theme, you've been a big advocate for the use of technology and derivatives market as a driver for efficiency. Which part of the markets, in your opinion, are the most in need of digital overhaul and how can this be achieved?
2: So firstly, I'd say the markets evolved pretty fast. One hallmark of the financial services industry is continued evolution. And so numerous technological advances over the years have meant. We've been able to scale this industry in a significant manner in ways that we could never do even a decade ago, and full credit to the vendor community, regulators, banks, sell side by side, all participating together. But the one area which remains a constant challenge has been, interestingly, the negotiation and digitization of legal documents, one being the ISDA you know, master as well as the CSA documents. And so there have been a number of solutions being proposed and implemented to allow online bilateral negotiation, uploading these automatically. This continues to be, in my mind, not just a challenge, but a great opportunity to remove friction in the the system. A number of utilities have been developed to look at this and, you know, we need further adoption. So it's not that the issue is not understood and it's not that people aren't looking at solutions. It's just moving faster on adoption. The other area where I think technology, again, has the ability to remove so much cost, which honestly is not relevant for the client experience or product development or money that could be invested in better product, is really the amount of effort that goes into managing margin disputes and the to and fro of margin flows across the industry. And so we have a need to automate there. Sort of front-to-back processing needs to be better linked up. And linking the margin dispute with the derivatives portfolio reconciliation process that banks have, that's, you know, an, again, an area where the industry is very focused. We need to see more acceleration there. On the Ibor transition front, much has been done and the ISDA protocol has helped tremendously. But one area which has proved to be hard to move faster has been bilaterally negotiating thousands of CSAs that reference Ionia, which have no fallbacks. And that's just a huge task when you think about client communication, drafting of documents, executing these documents, and then implementing them, which is hard. And so a lot of work there, so digitization can help. I think look, regulations like uncleared margin and what we've seen from the ISDA front have shown that online solutions for the workflow that's related to legal documentation actually will have scale benefits for us. There's a bunch of other areas. One is electronification of our core derivative markets, whether it's sales trader workflow, continued investment in algo pricing, electronic forwards, all areas which are seeing big changes and a lot of tech spend, a zero touch approach to operations. The analogy I always would give is if Amazon, you know, every time you went online and tried to buy a book, where you clicked on a button, had a different team look at your payment and a different team look at your recommendation and a different team fulfill and so on. And and they were all disconnected. Nobody would ever buy a book on Amazon. We need to be thinking in the same light that the touch points from end to end need to be completely STP and technology nowadays allows you to do that. Anti-financial crime and know your client. My hope is that COVID has shown the industry better ways of actually dealing with the know your client requirements in a much more tech savvy way. It's from a client perspective it's been a very positive experience if you ask people whether it's retail banking now being done on video or someone checking your passport via a video chat and so on, I think lots of lessons learned in that space. A huge amount of effort going into cloud, everything from market data through to taking your core application suite onto the cloud. That's going to be with us and I think you'll see the benefits come through in another three, four, five years, my view is that that will mean the product life cycle becomes that much more shorter and you have more money to invest in new product. And then I think we'll see more digitization of client interactions, whether that's just digital contact points, video, the use of symphony. These are all irreversible now, especially given the lessons we've learned in the pandemic. So I think technology is going to continue to transform our industry.
1: Now, as is ISDA is board member, you've been closely involved in ISDA's drive to bring greater standardization and digitization right across the entire derivatives lifecycle. An important element of this is the development of the common domain model, which establishes a standard codable taxonomy of events and processes that occur throughout the life cycle of a trade. Why is this so important?
2: So what we saw over the last 2 or 3 decades is this period of exponential growth in the over the counter derivatives industry and the good was a huge amount of innovation and problem solving for clients and the ability to manage risks better the negative of course was a paper based industry no central repository no cent- you know no clearing margin disputes all over the place much of that was addressed whether it was through the Fed commitment letters where the industry and, and banks work together to be able to deliver the structural improvements or otherwise. But the industry then delivered significant structural improvements, standards such as electronic confirmations, warehousing, including for life cycle event processing. And then, of course, you know, quite majorly clearing and the move to clearing to address many of these risks. That's been positive and that's allowed the industry to deal with this large growth in volumes. What hasn't happened is standardizing the taxonomy of transactions. And that's, I think, where the common domain model comes in. We do need it as sort of, I would think about it as foundational for digitization of all of the end-to-end processing that we undertake. It simplifies effectively the lineage for our transactions. It brings consistency. So we're all talking the same language for a transaction. And I think over time, will allow for new business models to be developed as it allows better interoperability and better integration. I'm a huge supporter of the command domain model. It's something that we've got to continue to roll out across the industry, and I think will bring the next wave of benefits for the industry compared to where we are today. Imagine a world where you represent an instrument everywhere, whether you're a corporate using it in your own risk management system or the bank using it its settlement system, or, or the bank's risk management system, or the clearinghouse, or a vendor, or a regulator, or a repository. Huge benefits because you're all representing the transaction in a similar way.
1: One of the areas where we're looking at is regulatory reporting, and it has a real opportunity to take the data that you have, and as a global bank, you have to report it in up to 21 jurisdictions that have regulatory reporting regimes. Could this CDM be helpful in meeting that regulatory reporting requirement, do you think?
2: This is such a huge issue because we want those regulatory repositories to actually be very usable. And usable, whether it's to spot systemic risk or bad actors in the system or build up of new risks, you really do need that trans, you know, those warehouses as efficient as possible with the right toolkit and transparency. So, It behooves all of us across the industry to make that happen and to help our regulators in that regard. But what you do need is really a standardized regulatory interpretation. You need consistency. You need to be able to sort of provide the benefits, not just for market participants and vendors, but for regulators as well. And I think the CDM being an agreed industry standard for the life cycle of these transactions, in a way, gives you the foundation to be able to do that standardization. It will reduce common source of problems, really, interpretation differences. And so, without having a gold standard like CDM, you always sort of chase, you're always looking at breaks, you're always trying to reconcile, well, actually fix the system up front, so you don't need to do that on the back end. And so, I think what it will provide is, is, if you could call it a gold standard for reporting. The other is you know, will allow for a shorter sort of development and implementation time. If you have standardized representation and the regulatory ask is very clear and everyone, including vendors, plums to that, you'll be able to move much faster. Not only for for us and remove costs, but also to deliver on the requirements of regulators. And then lastly, I would say where it would help is in reducing divergence between different regimes because you'd have sort of a single version of the truth if you may.
1: What role can banks and financial markets in general play in the shift to a greener economy? And to what extent are ESG factors influencing bank funding and risk and capital
2: management? Scott, when you look at the significant amounts of investment and transition costs that will be required over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, there's no question this is going to be one of the huge focuses. For the industry and not just because ESG is the right thing to do and focus on and, and to meet the goals of our investors and banks and our employees and so on in society but just simply to be honest to, to be able to find the funding and capital that allows this big transition to happen that's where capital markets come in and having efficient capital markets and an efficient regulatory framework that allows banks to find and create the environment for this funding to occur and then of course sort of efficiency, and especially in places like Europe, continued movement towards a banking union allows banks to then scale and meet the sort of needs of the economy to allow this transition to happen. Banking is going to play a huge role together with other stakeholders here, uh, but a very, very central role. You'll see some competition to fund green assets and to provide a decent supply of green funding to the real economy. And that's a good thing because I think what it means you. You get an amplification effect into the real economy and across capital markets. Most banks, including us, have announced ESG targets. We have a large internal task force that's been focused on meeting those targets. We already redirect capital and funding towards ESG assets where relevant. Green bond programs like the issues that we've done as well to tap into investor demand. It's a combination of not just working on the bank portfolios, but then working with our clients To enable their transition on a climate front. Organizations such as ISDA will play a fairly central role here because, you know, uh, sort of helping provide transparency around RWA treatment of ESG assets, looking at models that will drive red cap demand, you know, will be crucial. And again, it's a fast evolving space, which will need once again, transparency, standardization, analysis, to help all of the stakeholders navigate the environment, but also meet the requirements of both the, the client base as well as regulators.
1: This is a big journey that financial services and regulators and are going to be on in commercial firms as well, trying to figure out how they prioritize and price this appropriately. How important is a price on carbon in terms of accelerating the adoption of greater sustainable economy?
2: I think Scott, look, there's been much written about either the, the positive effects, uh, sort of carbon offsets and carbon trading event and also some of the sort of arbitrage and negative effects, if you may, around that. I, I do think the general trend towards shining a light and having more transparency, I think is, is hugely meaningful in changing the trajectory as we evolve in the space. Simply being able to see what your carbon footprint is or what the impact sort of pricing impact of relative activities is actually does help then guide outcomes. As always, if you can't measure it, it's very hard to manage it. And I think this is going to be one of those cases. So again, I think it's early days in creating much of that transparency, but you're seeing it come quite fast. It's coming fast because there's a, there's a regulatory demand, there's a societal demand. Clients are asking for it and quite frankly, banks want to do it. We're all very well aligned here. But the ecosystem needs to grow and mature much more, which is what we're beginning to see now.
1: kind of want to wrap up by asking a little more about you. I've known you for some time. How did you end up in financial services and becoming a treasurer of a major global bank?
2: I've you know, come from a business family. And so you know, I've always liked and enjoyed sort of business and the ability to produce outcomes and was about to become an actuary and was convinced by a, a bank CEO to, to become an investment banker. Always grateful to him for doing that, and you know never look back. I didn't set out to be a banker. I think that's the case for many in banking. Doors opened, you know, at fortuitous times. You know, thankful to the people who were there at formative moments who helped me along. I'm immensely grateful to them. But what I do love the most about our industry is it truly is one of the most interesting places to be when you look at the impact that you're able to have on real economy on real clients. When you think of purpose in what we do, in my mind, that greater purpose comes to mind. We're actually helping the economy grow. And not saying that in a shallow way, but genuinely, when you look at last year, the ability to help support the goals of central banks and governments was a good place to be last year, to be able to demonstrate that we're able to do that. And so I enjoy the ability to make change. I enjoy the the fact that there continues to be innovation. It's an industry which attracts very interesting and smart people, and so a joy to interact with them, and intellectually, problems to solve every day.
1: Well, you've been a great guest fielding a wide range of questions, all the things that are affecting a bank. We're going to wrap it up there.
0: Dixit, thanks a lot for joining us on The Swap.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Scott.
0: Scott, I'd like to pick up on one of the things that was discussed there, the fact that certain parts of the regulatory framework, and specifically the capital framework, might need to be reviewed in light of what happened during the pandemic. What's ISDA's view of that?
1: Well, we did talk a bit about the Basel Report, and as I mentioned, uh, ISDA has also published a paper with the Financial Services Forum and the Institute of International Finance that analyzed how financial markets and institutions fared during the crisis. Now, the report corroborates what policymakers have been saying, that the post-crisis regulatory reforms significantly enhanced the strength of the financial system and allowed financial institutions to continue to provide credit and intermediation services to their customers. But it also highlighted several other issues that could be assessed by policymakers as they consider how markets could better deal with the next global crisis. For example, our analysis showed that the current market risk rules were highly procyclical during the extreme market volatility of the last year, prompting a number of regulators to adopt temporary relief measures to smooth the impact. While the new FRTB framework has been designed to reduce procyclicality cyclicality and market risk capital requirements, our analysis shows that it is unnecessarily conservative. We think national authorities should take the opportunity to ensure that the rules are calibrated appropriately and will not inadvertently choke off the supply of credit to the real economy as we continue to recover from the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's something we'll definitely keep an eye on as national regulators develop their own rules, but we're out of time for now. Scott, thanks for your company. Enjoy the rest of your time in Washington, and please do keep an eye out for future episodes as we delve further into these and other key regulatory and market issues. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.